Nehemiah chapter 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses and also the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also took out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep and some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favour, my God, for all I have done for these people. So we are in Nehemiah chapter 5. Um, a brief recap for any of us who haven't been along um, each week and heard the story so far. Um, to bring us up to speed, we're, we're following the story, the narrative of the re-establishment of God's people um, after the exile in the history of Israel. So after being exiled by the Babylonians from the land that God had given to Israel, um, the Babylonians were later overthrown by the Persians, and the Persians um, allowed the people of particularly Judah 
to resettle the lands surrounding um, Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, which was in Ezra, and it kind of overlaps in the Bible history. And now we're focusing in on Nehemiah, who is the leader who oversaw particularly the rebuilding of the wall as the people resettled um, the land that God had given them. And so, as we've seen so far, um, Nehemiah has been, if you like, chronicling the rebuilding, particularly of the city wall. It's been a hugely significant step in the re-establishment of God's people. Building the wall is symbolic, it's significant. It's about God re-establishing his people in their land. And so, Nehemiah, in some ways, is a hero story. It's a, it's a story of Nehemiah, who is this leader who um, triumphs in lots of ways in displaying the faithfulness of God. It's a hero story about Nehemiah, but in some ways it's a dual focus because the hero is not so much Nehemiah we see, and we've been seeing so far. The hero is actually God himself, the ultimate leader of God's people, who is, through Nehemiah, uh, through Ezra, through these events, through this story, re-establishing his promises, making good on the things he said he would do to his people, Israel or Judah as it is. But like all good hero stories, um, it's not plain sailing. Um, and if you've been coming along week by week, you'll have seen so far. There are obstacles to overcome. There are things that get in the way. And the context of the passage that we're landing in tonight is what we looked at last week, which is put a particular obstacle, opposition to the rebuilding of the wall. The surrounding nations, um, particularly the, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, um, are opposing this resettlement of God's people in their land. They're plotting to thwart... God's purposes and the re-establishment and the building of the city wall. God's people are in the position of God fulfilling his promises to them and yet facing extreme opposition as they struggle to trust him and to persevere in the face of difficulty. And that theme comes back again, um, I assume next week, I don't know who's preaching next week, in chapter 6 when we get more opposition, great Charlie. And so, it's worth asking the question, why does this little passage sit sandwiched in between two passages about the opposition that God's people face from outside to trusting in God that he will fulfil his promises to re-establish them? That's where our passage tonight sits in the story of Nehemiah. It's a chapter that zooms in on the life of God's people amidst this building project, amidst this opposition, amidst this um, waiting and trusting and hoping in the God of his promises, who is fulfilling his promises. And again, like all good hero stories, um, good action stories, there's a twist. And the twist that we see this week is this, I think. As well as opposition from outside, as well as the things that go wrong that our heroes and stories have to overcome, there's often a point, isn't there, in, in action stories, in hero stories, where as well as things from the outside things start to go wrong on the inside. The heroes, the group, whoever it might be that we're focused on, start to quarrel or fall apart or they start to become divisions. And people have to face not just difficulties from external things, but from within the camp as well. And that's what we basically have in Nehemiah chapter 5. We have things that arise from within God's people which threaten to undermine or derail this fulfilment, it seems, of God's promises. And there's just three things I want us to notice tonight. Um, I think there's quite a lot in it, it's quite a long passage, but three things, and particularly three things that directly, I think, do apply to us as God's people um, tonight. And the three things are these, very simple. The danger of neglecting gospel community, 
the reason why gospel community matters, and lastly, I think we see the leader who cares for God's gospel community. We're going to see the danger of neglecting gospel community, the reason it matters, and the leader who ultimately cares for God's gospel community. So let's dive in um, and see where we get to. Um, as I just said to Dan, sorry, I did um, a lot of my prep um, from a slightly different translation. I'm just going to explain as we go why I think um, some of the things um, that I'm saying don't necessarily jump out from a couple of the words in the passage. Um, we'll get there in a minute. Firstly, verse 1, Nehemiah chapter 5. What happens? It says, now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Oh, I've got to click that. Thanks, you can do it then. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Or actually, a literal translation is, against their Jewish brothers. Notice what happens, just even in that first verse. There is a great outcry, we learn. Uh, in Hebrew, that word outcry is a word for injustice. It's a word for the beginning of a legal proceeding. It's a word for something that is oppressive and wrong with the world. That is what is happening in the people, uh, among the people of God. A great outcry. Notice as well, strange phrase, it's um, the men and their wives who raise this outcry. Quite an odd thing to say, isn't it? I think that's the sense that this is deep set in the community. This is not just the heads of the, the families. This is not just the men working on the wall. This is throughout all the people. It's the men and their wives who raise a great outcry. And notice thirdly, it's an outcry about injustice against their fellow Jews, or literally against their brothers. And notice then in the the following verses what the problem is. There are three main issues. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. There is a famine on, and lots of them, because there are so many, uh, don't have enough to eat in their families. Verse 3, others are saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes, to get grain during the famine. They are being forced to mortgage the things that they own. They are being forced to borrow against their property, their fields and their vineyards in order to survive. And thirdly, still others were saying, verse 4, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. The taxes of the king, under whose authority they are still technically living, are heavy. And so they're having to mortgage and borrow against, again, their possessions, their property, in order to pay it. Which means verse 5 sums it up for us. The problem, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, or again, as our brothers, is the literal word there, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our brothers, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. They are being forced, among God's people, to to borrow, to amass interest, and in some cases, extreme cases, to subject their own families to Slavery. It was a practice that was actually allowed under Jewish law. You can read about it in Exodus 21. When you couldn't pay your debts, when you borrowed more than you could afford to pay back, you might be forced to sell a member of your family, a son or a daughter, in payment as a slave for a fixed amount of time. Technically allowed in some measure, it's clear this was a very extreme situation that we see developing in the societal life of God's people. And it's a problem, I think, for at least two reasons for Israel. Firstly, the economic infrastructure of Israel, um, God's people, is under serious threat here, I think we're supposed to notice. People are are having to sell, having to mortgage, and then not be able to afford to use or buy back their farms, their vineyards, their olive groves. This was the backbone of the society that they lived in. This was 
the, the, the source of their trade and their commerce. They were at risk, Israel, God's people are at risk of collapsing economically because of these conditions. It's the start, if you like, of a, a credit crunch, a downward spiral, a falling of economic prosperity. But secondly, and I think we'll see more importantly, the social structures of Israel are under threat here. I think this sense that we get from the fact that the word outcry is used, an outcry against fellow Jews, an outcry against brothers, is that they're starting to turn on each other. It's a familiar rhetoric, isn't it? You don't have to imagine the kind of thing that would have been going round among God's people. The wealthy are becoming more wealthy. The poor are becoming more poor. They're having to take on huge debts, huge mortgages. There's not enough food to go around. Their means of producing more food are being mortgaged. It develops so quickly. I mean, it's rife in our society today, isn't it? The divisions between rich and poor, they quickly take root. They grow like weeds and they lead to divisions among prosperity, wealth and entitlement. You know, hatred for the establishment, cynicism towards benefit culture. You see it, don't you, today? And I think that's what's developing in Israel, among God's people. Just a few verses before, remember the chapter before, if you were here last week, we saw God's people pulling together. We saw them, um, if you like, kind of being a team. There's no I in team, is there? Here we are, facing opposition. One of them working on the wall, the other one holding a sword in their hand to defend them. They were facing difficulties together and in just a few verses... We see injustice, we see oppression, we see division, and we see, literally, enslavement of God's people among each other. Do you see why it's an outcry? Do you see why, straight away in the first few verses, we're supposed to notice, this should not be. This is a terrible situation. And the narrative makes it clear, I think, why this is such a terrible situation. Again, if you were to look down... um, Quickly scan your eyes down. Notice the number of times the NIV translates the phrase fellow Jews. But again, as I've already said, the literal translation is brothers. And the language of brother is used eight times in the first ten verses. These are brothers, the narrator wants us to know, who are doing this to each other. And it's clear from verse five as well that the the, the complaint takes this form. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our brothers, the people say, They're complaining that this should not be, this is an outrage, this is an outcry, because this is the family of God. This is God's covenant community. This inequality, this exploitation, this lack of concern for the poor, this lack of care for those who are struggling, is not the way God's people, God's family should treat each other. And so, this firstly shows, I think, the very real danger of neglecting gospel community, or or you could say gospel family. God's covenant community and the relationships that should exist. But the warning is more subtle than that, I think. Because we should ask, why has this situation been allowed to come about? I think, again, there's probably a couple of reasons. And if you read around the chapters surrounding this chapter, I think you get a sense of why this has happened. Firstly, I think it's probably clear this is... The, the, the result of opposition that they're facing. So we saw last week, the threat from neighbouring nations means that the Israelites are becoming increasingly cut off um, from trade ties, from economic and commercial ties. They are becoming increasingly isolated, I think, as a nation in a time of famine. 
But I actually think we're supposed to get the sense from the context that in part, this is happening because of the heavy demands and expectations of building the city wall that were very clearly detailed in the preceding chapters. We learn in chapter 4, for example, Nehemiah expects that the farmers from rural areas would come to Jerusalem to build the wall, to help, to get alongside each other, which makes it very difficult to farm. There's a huge financial cost that would have been levied on the people to building the wall, not to mention the cost of then having to protect those building the wall. Again, we saw that last week. One commentator I read puts it like this. It's as if in chapter 5, the high ideals and the precautionary measures that Nehemiah has instilled to build the wall have finally started to take effect economically on the society of Israel. And so I think we're supposed to see there's a very real danger in their focus on building the wall. And the the danger is this. It's the danger that amidst busy, worthwhile, good activity, you know, the, the wall building is a great thing to be doing, but amidst it, there is a very real danger that God's people neglect gospel community. Treating each other as the Lord's family which under the covenant is what they are. Remember, this is not, I think it's clear in the passage, it's not premeditated exploitation. This isn't driven by a social agenda. This isn't the rich and the powerful getting together, deciding to exploit the weak. In fact, I think that's clear from the fact that if you, if you look down, Nehemiah himself, verse 10, admits that he is part of the problem. He has been contributing to this by lending to people. It's not premeditated premeditated. I think the sense is just that with such a focus on building, on activity, on productivity, all good things, there's been a lack of awareness. There's been a lack of priority. There's been a failure of the well-off and the wealthy to be kind and considerate. Do you see, it's the danger of neglecting gospel community. So, kind of straight away, think about um, applying it to ourselves. Whilst here we're talking about a nation, aren't we? We're talking about God's people nationally in the history of the Bible. This is a societal structure, of course, isn't it? Nevertheless, we must remember, God's people in the Bible are always a picture of what it means to be God's people. Ultimately, the ultimate city that God is bringing out of exile, the ultimate group of people that God is redeeming from sin the ultimate house that the Lord is building out of us as Christians. So I take it this is a warning that we need to listen to. As I thought about this, I I, I wondered, you know, where's the danger for us? Where's the danger for me of neglecting gospel community? And I thought it might be easy to kind of, I don't know if we've been doing this, I haven't been here every week, you know, talk about something like the Irving Building, you know, the focus that we've had on the Irving Building buying, perhaps even building part of a building. Um, That's where we always apply Nehemiah, isn't it? Let's build more churches or walls or whatever it might be. Um, Personally, I I think our leaders um, have have done a fantastic job in helping us not get so focused on a building project that we've neglected, I hope, and I think, the daily business of being God's family. I think it's been very clear and a great example of godly leadership. So I think we need to think actually perhaps a bit more personally. How easy is it for us actually as individuals to get focused on being busy with Christian activity, building, 
and the neglect of actually caring for each other like family. How, how far down the priority list does that come in terms of our Christian activity? Good though that is. It just occurred to me as I was preparing, am I even aware of those in our family who are in some sense poor or struggling or in need of support? It's not premeditated. You see, it wasn't in the time of, uh, that we're reading in chapter 5. It wasn't deliberate. It was simply the danger of neglecting something important for the sake of something seemingly urgent. If you're like me, I know I can be very busy in terms of church activity through, I don't know, contributing, being on a rota, preaching, leading music, whatever it might be. All good stuff. Building the wall is a great thing to be doing. But it's never a substitute for simple gospel family priorities. Being aware, being interested, being active in treating brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters, which is what Israel are not doing in chapter 5 of Nehemiah. It's the danger of neglecting gospel community, I think. But secondly, um, I think we notice the reason why gospel community matters so much. I think this is the second thing that this passage teaches us. So look down again, we'll just skip down through a bit more of the narrative. See how the story unfolds. Nehemiah is angry, again, underlining the fact this is serious. And he calls an assembly of the nobles and the officials. And look at his reasoning, verse 8, for why this is such an awful thing that is developing. He says, As far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews, again, brothers, who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. Again, the translation doesn't make it quite clear, but I think, I think the sense of what he's saying is clear. Essentially, he's highlighting the deep irony, isn't he, in what's going on with this practice of debt slavery that's developing. He's saying it's so out of place, buying, trading slaves from your own people, from your own brothers, in payment of debt. It's so out of place to this extent because we are all redeemed people. We are all ultimately people who have been freed. He said that's the point. We've been freed from slavery. First in Egypt, back in the history of Israel, delivered to the promised land, now being restored back from exile as free members of God's family. As far as possible, we've brought back our fellow brothers, he says, only for them to now be sold amongst ourselves. See, the irony of what's going on is disturbing, isn't it? And again, lovely little uh, detail in the text, I think it's reinforced by the language. What is it that they are losing out on, these people who are having to mortgage things and suffering? It's repeated twice in the passage. Um, It comes up in verse 11 and earlier on um, in verse 3 and 4, I think it is. It's fields, it's vineyards, it's olive groves and it's houses. And that that should sort of ring a bell. Those were, in part, the blessings of being God's people in the land. They were shorthand for the things God gave the people of Israel as inheritance. Everyone had the right to those things in Israel. Which makes what's going on so dark and perverse, I think. They're denying each other, through this enslavement, the things they were entitled to. Because, well, simply by virtue of being free people of God. 
Do you see why gospel community matters? Nehemiah tells the, the, the leaders of Israel. Because the way you treat your brothers and sisters shows something about the gospel. It shows something about how you view your brothers and sisters. Either as fellow exiles who have also been redeemed from slavery and welcomed into the promise, or as, well, people who can be re-enslaved if necessary. People who don't need to have fields and olive groves and houses and vineyards. So as far as I know, um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think anyone at Magdalen Road is enslaving other people. Um, but we need to remember as well, don't we, slavery and redemption, this whole story of, of God's people in the Old Testament, whilst it wasn't less than physical, certainly in, the, in Nehemiah's time, it was always more, wasn't it? It always represented more, God's people being freed from slavery. There was a spiritual dimension. This was a foreshadowing this is, is ultimately a picture, God's people freed from slavery, brought back from exile, of the deliverance that God offers his people in the gospel. Freeing, redeeming, granting inheritance. And so a legitimate application, I think, for us is, how do we, in the way we treat each other, how are we in danger of lording it over at enslaving in some sense, exacting interest over Christian brothers and sisters. What, what might that look like if it's not physical like it was for Nehemiah? Well, think about how do we hold back forgiveness when people wrong us? Or harbour resentment? Or fail to show patience when people don't think the way we should about something? Or act the way we think they should act? Our criticism, our, our critical thoughts, the way we think of others, the way we speak of others. They're little things, aren't they? But actually when you think about it, they reveal something about how you see other people, don't they? You can't hold back forgiveness without assuming superiority over someone. That you're better than them. You can't remain angry with someone without implying that you wouldn't have done that in their situation. You can't lose patience with someone without basically saying in your heart, I wouldn't have done that if I were you, I'm better than you. Do you see, not treating people as free, redeemed, rescued in the way that you have been. It's, it, it's a spiritual sense, isn't it? But it's essentially an enslavement. It's lording it over people. It's holding something against people who under the gospel, under God's redemption plan, have been freed. Which is exactly what's going on among God's people. I mean, in a sense, those are just, um, they're simple ways of relating to each other, aren't they? That's, that's not rocket science. But do you see the basis for it in the church, in God's family? It is our status as all redeemed people, all sinners who fail but have been set free. That should show in the way we treat each other, in our relationships. In Nehemiah's time, physically, in how they treated each other. And that's the reason why gospel community matters. It says something about the gospel. But secondly, um, and maybe more interestingly, the reason gospel community matters, I think, comes up in verse 9, which I think sums up, in some ways, the heart of this passage. Let me read it. Verse 9. So I continued. What you are doing is not right. 
Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach, or again, literally, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? And the reason I just stressed that is because that word taunt is exactly the same word that was used the chapter before to describe what's happening to Israel at this time. Sanballat and Tobiah, the the leaders of some of the nations around, they are taunting God's people. That's the context of this passage. And so Nehemiah here makes a very, very profound link. He says, shouldn't you Israel, in the face of opposition, walk in the fear of the Lord to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Do you see? People are looking in, nations are looking in, and they're, they're jeering, they're laughing, they're mocking this weak and feeble group of of returnees as they try and build the wall of their city. And so the question that we're left with is, how do you face the taunts and the jeers of surrounding nations? Opposition. Part of the answer was last week that we looked at, and it was to be prepared to work together to trust the Lord in the face of opposition. This week, I think the answer is a bit more surprising, isn't it? The way you face the jeers and taunts of surrounding nations, the way you face opposition, is you maintain radical gospel community and love for each other, Nehemiah seems to say. You walk in the fear of the Lord, and that means treating each other as God's family. Israel is being watched, they're being jeered at. The nations are mocking their commitment to Yahweh, his covenant, and walking in his ways. And so if they look in and if they see a people who are divided, who are arguing, who are breaking their own economic structure with this over-borrowing, this exploitation, literally enslaving each other, makes a huge statement, doesn't it, to the surrounding nations about what it means to follow Yahweh. Whereas to look in and see people committed to each other, being a family, walking in the fear of the Lord, shows what it means to be God's people. It's quite a thought, isn't it, as you think about um, being a witness to the watching world. Again, jumping in, sorry, let them carry on. Jumping in straight to application. As God's people, in a world that ignores or criticises or actively persecutes the church, what does fear of the Lord look like? Fear of the Lord, again, Fear of the Lord is a, is, is, is a phrase, it's shorthand for reverence for God, living life in light of who God is and what he's done. And Nehemiah, I think, is saying, it's displayed in the way that you treat each other. In a world that ignores or criticises or persecutes the church, Ephesians 3, verse 10 says, the manifold wisdom of God is seen in the way the church relates to each other through often weak-looking, mistake-making, ragtag, disparate group of people who might seem very weak on a human level. The Bible says God's power is displayed to a watching world in the face of opposition. Some of you may uh, know of uh, a guy called Francis Schaeffer, um, who was a great apologist um, of the last sort of half century. He was a Christian writer and thinker and pastor. And he devoted, particularly the latter half of his life, to um, apologetics. So defending and persuading critics of, 
Christianity, of the reasonableness of Christianity, providing a robust defence in the face of opposition, giving good answers to common questions. And it's got a huge legacy in terms of written output and um, uh, establishing Libri, which is a, a series of um, uh, centres where people can go to find out um, answers to difficult questions they have about Christianity. But he said, at the end of a huge ministry, and actually all the way through, a ministry of defending, of standing up against opposition, of persuading people, he said that ultimately the greatest apologetic, the greatest defence, the thing that will persuade people of the reasonableness and the truth of Christianity, after all the intellectual things maybe have been talked about, he said, is love. He said it's the greatest apologetic. And of course he wasn't the first person to say that. Jesus himself said, didn't he, by this all men will know you are my disciples, that you love one another. It's quite a I think it's counterintuitive. It's quite a thought, isn't it? This is what silences, taunts and jeers, Nehemiah says. This is what displays the wisdom and power of walking in the fear of the Lord. It's the way you treat each other as God's people. There's a danger of neglecting gospel community for Nehemiah, I think sometimes for us. And the reason it matters is because it says something about the gospel. And it's also saying something to the world. So we see the danger of neglecting gospel community. We see the reason it matters. And lastly, we see the leader who cares for God's community. Charlie can just lean over and do the honours. Just notice, and we're going to have to go a bit quicker through this last part of the drama, but notice how it closes. Nehemiah rebukes the people. The people take notice and they listen and they promise to change. They promise to release mortgage property. They promise to release family members. But before everyone goes merrily on their way and we get back to the opposition and the the wall building, the camera zooms out for a few verses. And we're told about, in a more general sense, Nehemiah as governor of Judah or Israel, God's people. He becomes governor, we learn, for 12 years. But more than that, we're told at the end of chapter 5 the kind of governor that he becomes. And do you notice the contrast that he makes or the narrator makes as they describe him? Earlier governors, verse 15, place a heavy burden on the people. They exact money and produce. They lord it over the people that they're ruling. Whereas Nehemiah, what does he say? Out of reverence for God, literally out of fear of the Lord, it's that phrase again, doesn't act like that. Nehemiah, who a few verses earlier has been involved in this problem of lending and exacting interest, As he rises to become rich and powerful, he chooses to forego the allowance that he's due as governor. As a leader, he's he's due certain provision, privilege, but he refuses to claim it. Instead, what does he do, verse 16? He devotes himself to the good of the people and continues working alongside them. You see, here's the leader who cares for God's community. Here's the leader who is not simply there to call out the leaders of Israel. He's prepared to model extravagantly what he's asking them to do. And that's what's going on in verses 17 to 19 as well, I think. So you get this little thing, it describes the fact that he entertains people at his table. And I take it that this is his responsibility. He has to um, entertain and and meet with the leaders of, of 
God's people, and he also has to entertain visitors. But notice, even though he could have exacted this cost from state funds, you know, put in an expense claim form um, to get all this back because this is state business, notice verse 18, each day an ox, six sheep and poultry are prepared, as well as an abundant supply of all kinds of wines, every single day. And that phrase, for me, it says it's prepared for me, is actually, literally, at my expense. It's clear from the rest of the verse that's what it means. Nehemiah never demands the food that he is due because, he says, these demands were heavy on the people. Do you see? As we finish, here is a leader who, above all else, wants to ease the burden on God's people. He wants to provide for God's people. He wants to care for God's people. Which means this passage, this, this warning, it doesn't finish simply with God's people resolving to try harder and do better. It finishes with a focus on the leader that God provides who models and serves at his own expense with generosity and abundance. Which makes Nehemiah in this story an example, not so much for us to follow, although in part that's true, but an example to show what God's people, waiting for God's promises, are ultimately in need of. They're in need not simply of a leader who will manage a building project and protect them from their enemies and sort out legal and economic difficulties. They're in need of a leader who, rather than being a burden, will ease their burden. Do you see? A leader who, rather than taking hold of his rights as a ruler, will forego his rights and humble himself. They're in need of a leader who will not live comfortably while his people are in need, but will give up his estate to serve them and share what he has. I think that's the picture that we get of Nehemiah here. We're in need of a leader who literally will welcome people at his table with abundant provision at his own expense. And so if we're wondering ultimately what we need as God's people, Nehemiah is the teaser, I think, in the end of this chapter. He's a foreshadow, isn't he? He's, he's a picture of the ultimate city builder who builds, as we've seen, not with bricks and mortar, but with people, with spiritual stones, who, who he fits together as his spiritual house, creating this gospel community by saying, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest because my burden is easy and my yoke is light. We know, it's very clear from the book, Nehemiah is not the perfect leader of God's people. And and actually, another little detail, verse 19, I think, underlines that. Little kind of throwaway comment, it seems. Verse 19, how does Nehemiah finish? He says, remember me with favour, my God, for all I have done for these people. Again, it's worth just noting that. It's, it's the first in a series of prayers Nehemiah makes where he records what he has done for the people and asks God for the recognition that he deserves. It comes up again and again in the book. And it's a slightly odd phrase. It, it could be slightly egotistical. It could be he felt, as he came to write this account, unappreciated for what he'd done. Whatever it is, I think it shows us that God's people are still waiting for the ultimate leader, Jesus, aren't they? A leader who says not, remember me with favour for all I have done, but remember them with favour for all I have done.
Do you see, there was, there was a huge cost to the people of God to sort this out. It's worth thinking, isn't it? People had to write off debts. People had to release servants. People had to share economic prosperity. They couldn't just sort of fix it without actually being generous. There was a cost to the people. And as we finish, it does cost us, doesn't it, to try and live the way I think this chapter is encouraging us to live. Valuing gospel community, the relationships we have with our Christian brothers and sisters. Maintaining commitment to people when life is busy. When other priorities crowd in. Trying to be patient with people. Forgiving. Bearing with one another and trying to bear each other's burdens. That always costs, doesn't it? But I think the passage finishes by reminding us the thing that changes you into someone who is willing to be generous and vulnerable and ease the burdens of others is the knowledge of the one who got alongside and was generous and made himself vulnerable to us. The ultimate Nehemiah, if you like. Jesus who eases the burden of God's people, draws alongside the poor, shares what he has, welcomes us at his table at great expense to himself. And the extent to which we see him and understand and appreciate that, I think is the extent to which we'll be changed into a community that does likewise. The danger of neglecting gospel community, the reason it matters, and the leader who cares for God's community. Should we take a moment and then I'll pray for us and then we're going to sing. Father, thank you for the warnings and exhortations we have in your word. Thank you for the the history of your people um, who are there for us to learn from and listen to. And thank you for, for Nehemiah and particularly this part of your word we've looked at tonight. Father, I do pray simply that we would be people who don't neglect even for the sake of good things that we're involved in, to take care of each other, to know how each other are struggling, and to have relationships with each other that are shaped by the fact that we are all redeemed people of you. Lord, we, we pray that you would bring, bring to mind for us um, the areas in which we undervalue or simply neglect gospel community. And help us become the type of people who show to the world what it means to walk in the fear of your name by the way we treat each other. We pray now that as we sing, we would have our hearts and our minds, um, our spiritualised Lord, raised to the Lord Jesus who is our ultimate Nehemiah, the leader who cares for us at his own expense, eases our burdens and shares what he has. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.